It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. A year ago, the streets of Hong Kong were packed with protests against a bill that threatened criminal suspects with extradition to mainland China. Today, those streets are quiet. It's partly due to a renewed spike in coronavirus cases, but behind closed doors, Hong Kong is changing fast. Under the aegis of a sweeping new national security law passed in secret on June the 30th, Chinese Communist Party officials have moved from the fringes to the heart of local policymaking. It authorizes the Chinese government's secret agents to impose order not subject to local law. Government-appointed judges can dispense with juries and try cases in secret. Complex or serious crimes can be tried on the mainland. Politically sensitive books have been pulled from library shelves. Any social media post deemed to be a threat can be removed and its author banned. It's a certainty of sorts. The stock market has leapt, but many hearts have sunk. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, has China won the battle for Hong Kong? Later on in the programme, you'll hear from Nathan Law, a leading pro-democracy activist who's felt obliged to leave Hong Kong for fear of punishment under the new law. Just try to imagine if you live in a country or in a place that there is no freedom of expression, freedom of demonstration or even freedom of thoughts. But my first guest is Regina Ip. A member of Hong Kong's Executive and Legislative Councils, she was Secretary for Security from 1998 to 2003, and she's the founder and chairperson of the pro-Beijing New People's Party. Regina Ip, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you very much for, for being with us today. Now, a year ago, with Hong Kong erupting in protest, you contributed an opinion piece to us at The Economist in our Open Future project, arguing that in view of Hong Kong's declining economic importance to China, Hong Kong should maybe be more worried about abandonment by China than intervention. So what changed and why did China decide that this new law was necessary? Hong Kong's democratic movement has been hijacked by extremists and radicals. In fact, in the recent primaries held by the pandemic, you can see that the traditional democratic representatives were displaced by the extremists and localists who support a form of um, Hong Kong independence. So in view of the rise of this Hong Kong independence or democratic self-determination, movement in Hong Kong, Beijing had to move in to enact a new piece of legislation to fill the gaps in our legislation. In view of last year's turbulence, in particular, what uh, is perceived by Beijing as challenges to its sovereignty and authority and threatening its security, Beijing moved very quickly to enact a new national 
security law for implementation in Hong Kong. That's what has happened. But given your own analysis that Hong Kong was declining in its importance to China in economic terms, why was this necessary at all? Why would a secessionist movement, if if that's what you think it has become, why would it be considered such a threat to China? Well, Hong Kong is important, not just as an economic city. Geographically, it's at the southern doorstep. It's definitely against China's interest to have Hong Kong, the most international city in the nation, to become a subversive base or a hotbed for rebels. Moreover, it is important for, for Chinese leaders to ensure that the one country, two systems formula put forward by Mr. Deng Xiaoping continue to succeed. And in the new national security law, the first article, Article 4, repeatedly stressed that um, rights and freedoms will continue to be safeguarded in Hong Kong. And one country, two systems, this uh, concept will continue to be privileged. But you see, that's that's the crux of the matter, isn't it? The key point. Because a lot of the protesters who are not arguing for secession outright from China, nonetheless feel that one country, two systems, is being watered down by this intervention. And these are by no means all extremists, are they? They're they're people, and you will know them well, you'll know many of them personally, who simply argue that Hong Kong, to fulfil the spirit of that agreement, needs more freedoms, and those freedoms are under attack. What is wrong with what they say? These concerns are understandable, but I think we should bear in mind that rights and freedoms are not absolute, even under the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. All, many countries around the world have some form of national security legislation, which has some impact on rights and freedoms. UK, for example, has hate crimes. You, know. you can... Uh, prosecute someone for expressing hatred on the basis of sex, race, nationality, religion. There are many offences on the statute books of many countries which has some impact on rights and freedoms, provided that they are reasonably necessary and proportionate. And in what sense would you say one country, two systems still exists? How different is Hong Kong from any other Chinese city or territory. We are a common law jurisdiction, you know. We have strong common law foundations. We are radically different from the mainland in this respect. And under common common law brings with it all the reasonable safeguards of rights and freedoms, due process and remedies to wrongdoing. You know? But many senior legal minds in Hong Kong, uh, Martin Lee and others, feel that that's an empty statement and that the judiciary is now coming under pressure. I don't think, I think it's really irresponsible for a senior lawyer like Martin Lee to say that, you know. We have very good judges on the bench and their judgments are are very well argued. It's open for everyone to see. I don't think we have seen any evidence of judges writing judgments and bowing to pressure. I think that is without foundation. It's not so much pressure, Mrs. Zip. The, the new law, at least as, as many understand it, would mean that Chinese government agents would not be subject to local Hong Kong law. Um, the basic law says they will be subject to Hong Kong laws. They have to abide by Chinese laws. 
and they have to abide by Hong Kong rules. Well, they, they in some cases might be two different things when it comes to an understanding of national security, mightn't they? The Office for Safeguarding National Security could take some direct action, but only upon approval by the central government of a request made by the Hong Kong government in specified circumstances. Number one, if the case is so complex, it's very complex because of involvement of foreign country or external elements. You know. Secondly, if a situation occurs where the government is unable to enforce the law. So in, the, in that case, the law in Beijing clearly would, as you see it, would override local law. Of course, you know, in such circumstances. Of course, national law would or could override local laws. We are a small city within a big country. On Monday, Britain joined with Canada and Australia suspending the extradition agreement with China over the, the, the Hong Kong situation. What's your response to that? It's really unwise for UK to suspend the fugitive offenders arrangement because that arrangement covers 29 serious criminal offences but does not cover public order offences or national security offences. It really means that without this sort of arrangement, UK could become a haven for criminals like drug traffickers. Of the three uh, agreements in the area of criminal mutual assistance, UK is suspending one only. UK and US is leaving untouched, I think the most important one, about mutual assistance in criminal matters, that is, cutting off terrorist funding, money laundering, internet crime. There are many areas where Hong Kong and UK can continue to cooperate. For example, in academic and cultural exchange. You know. I don't see why that cannot continue. But it, it has been quite a, a disruption in the, the, the relationship. And I suppose the, the offer of a kind of safe space, if you like, in Britain to those who may want to leave Hong Kong in the wake of the passing of this law is a very strong implicit criticism of Hong Kong. But it's not as generous as it sounds, you know. It's just offering an immigration route. Britain is far more generous to other former dependencies. In the year 2000, it passed the British Overseas Territories Act and gave British citizenship outright without settlement requirement to the last remaining 12 dependencies. It's treating Hong Kong differently from the other former dependencies. I don't know whether it's because of race. I don't think it's that generous. And I don't think many people will want to emigrate to UK. And do you think the relationship with Hong Kong will remain close after the, the passing of the legislation as it stands? It takes two to tangle. It's also a matter of choice for your government. You know, does it have to take such a negative view about China protecting its own city? Let's move to America and Donald Trump's position on all this. He's just signed the Hong Kong Autonomy Act, and that places sanctions on those involved, uh, as the American side put it, in extinguishing Hong Kong's freedoms. That would include financial firms doing business with them. And it also states that Hong Kong is no longer a separate economic entity from the rest of China. What impact do you think that will have? In fact, it's really quite, um, I won't say laughable, it's a serious matter, but it's really quite um, eyebrow-raising that um, a great country like the USA sees the enactment of a national security law in Hong Kong as something that constitutes a national emergency. That's what the order says. 
Don't you think that's a bit of a really overstatement? What's he talking about? Little Hong Kong constituting a national security threat, emergency to USA? This is really mind-boggling. It's all politics. It's all anti-China politics. You wrote last year that Hong Kong's relative economic importance was already declining. Do you think a new security law will damage Hong Kong's status as a hub for business and finance? There are some worries at present. That's understandable. We had feedback about some concerns about uncertainty as to how the new law is to be implemented. Most businesses are not worried. The feedback I got from a lot of multinationals is, number one, they treasure stability. They want to stay apolitical. And they want to continue to stay in Hong Kong because of our proximity to China's market. But isn't the problem that, that this leaves businesses where you are, which is that they have to choose effectively between penalties under the national security law, facing penalties from America if they don't support American sanctions, and leaving Hong Kong altogether. Why would many not be tempted to go? The choice is not as stuck as you describe. Most businesses don't get into trouble under national security law. They can just carry on with their business. Tax firms, accountant firms, I doubt if they have much interface with the protesters or young people like Joshua Wong or Nathan Law. Because of America's uh, financial sanctions, you know, of course, some banks would have more compliance rules to deal with. But other than that, I don't think they would be severely affected. You touch on two of the big names there in the protest movement, Joshua uh, Wong and Nathan Law. I mean, it does seem a terrible tragedy, doesn't it, that young people who really ought to be very strongly intellectually engaged, they have leadership qualities, they should be part of the future of Hong Kong, are being basically swept aside, they feel that their case is not being heard. What's your opinion of them personally? It's their choice. They have uh, gone on a primrose path to self-destruction. You know, it's their choice to want to promote uh, separatism uh, from China. I feel sorry for them. All the problems that they face now are of their own doing. You know, in fact, they are too young. They are too young to to make judgments on these fundamental issues. Why should they be involved in promoting separation from China? Why should they do that? I often wonder who's behind them. You think they are being steered by other people? I mean, they seem, and we've had contact with them over the years, like many journalists, they seem like rather independent-minded people. Nathan Law is 27 years old. It would not be unusual to be involved in politics or about the fate of the place you live at 27, would it? Well, uh, Nathan has studied at Lingnan University, where they have uh, uh, an academic who has been writing about Hong Kong as a separate city-state, you know, Hong Kong's future as a separate political entity. Of course, there have been influences on these young people. I'm sorry, do you not believe that they're capable of making up their own minds, given that they've been in this movement for many years, and they've grown up in it, if you like? I'll be happy to debate them. Too bad I never had a chance. I don't think they have ever taken part in some really rational, informed debate about Hong Kong's future. I wonder to what extent they really understand the issues involved. 
Let's look to what will uh, happen later in the year. Uh, earlier in July, we saw more than 600,000 Hong Kongers participating in informal primaries to help choose candidates for opposition parties in the Legislative Council elections that will be held in September. Now, Beijing responded by saying they harboured evil intentions, including the use of Hong Kong as a base for subversion and foreign infiltration. These are crimes, as you know, covered by the new law. But do you believe that opposition parties will be allowed to field a full roster of candidates in September? Because that is really what freedom means, isn't it? Freedom to choose from a list of candidates reflect all views and not just a selection. These primaries have no basis, no position in our laws, you know. The rights to stand for election under the ICCPR, International Covenant Civil Political Rights, is not absolute. It can be subject to certain restrictions. And in our law, we already have a requirement that uh, all candidates must make a statement to the effect that uh, they support the basic law and pledge allegiance to the Hong Kong SAR, very reasonable. I think they have to pass this test. Whether all of them would pass this test is not for me to say. It's for our returning officers to judge based on facts and legal provisions. If you maintain that Hong Kong remains distinct with meaningful autonomy in practice, how do you think the new law will shape Hong Kong's future? I think... Not many people will be arrested in the the new law. The new law will test our common law system, whether people can really be charged and whether convictions will be upheld by the courts. You know, it will be a test of our separate systems. At the end of the day, I see very small number of people arrested and convicted. But I think the new law already has produced the deterrent effect we want to bring back stability and calm. Regina Ip, thank you very much for speaking with me. Thank you. My next guest is one of those young pro-democracy activists, a founding member of the Democisto party, Nathan Law. In 2016, he became the youngest ever elected member of Hong Kong's Legislative Council at just 23, but he never took his seat. He was one of six opposition lawmakers disqualified for using their oaths of office to protest against Chinese rule. Following the passing of the new security law in June this year, he fled Hong Kong to the UK, from where he joins me now down the line. Nathan Law, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hi, thanks for the invitation. You're speaking to us from Britain. On July the 20th, that's Monday of this week, the UK announced it would suspend its extradition treaty with Hong Kong. Is that the right decision? And from a personal perspective, having left the territory uh, for here, for, for Britain, how do you feel about the development? Yeah, I think the British government made a very uh, prompt decision uh, in regards to the latest situation in Hong Kong, which is the latest implementation of national security law. You could see that the national security law really uh, destroyed the rule of law in Hong Kong. It, it gives the authority, the government's whipping power of like prosecution or um, assigning uh, judges, depriving the individuals from having a jury. So it is important that uh, countries like the UK adopt measures like this in order to showcase the crisis, the level of crisis in Hong Kong. So earlier in the show, we spoke to Regina Ip, uh, who you will know well. She's a member of the Hong Kong Executive Council, its cabinet. She says the new law is already producing the deterrent effect on protest that was 
intended. She thinks it won't lead to many arrests and that it is a test of one country, two systems in practice. Uh, What's your view? Does one country, two systems still exist under this new arrangement? The deterrence effect proposed by the National Security Law and Regional it referred to is at the expense of people's freedom. Just try to imagine if you live in a country or in a place that there is no freedom of expression, freedom of demonstration, or even freedom of thoughts, then definitely like protest does not exist or will be largely quashed. But these are our freedom. We are entitled to enjoy this freedom. But the government wanted to protect the authority, to protect the Communist Party, and they try to suppress the protests at the expense of people's entitled freedom. So that is the problem. Regina Ip is a very pro-Beijing, pro-government legislator and executive council member, and he does not understand why Hong Kong people are so angry. And given the circumstance, this extremely volatile and uh, harsh circumstance, there are still people coming out to protest because we, we have seen the erosion of one country, two system. We have seen the decline of freedom and autonomy in Hong Kong. One of the other remarks she made when we we spoke to her just before we we spoke to you is that pro-democracy activists like yourself and Joshua Wong are too young to make judgments about fundamental issues. They were her words. She said, I often wondered who they are being steered by. What's your response to that? Well, it's interesting that um, these pro-Beijing people were very conservative who thinks that authoritarian is fine, autocracy is fine, really hates the younger generation. Well, no one in the world with rational mind would think that people who are in their 20s, their opinion are not important. For me, I was elected as a legislator at the age of 23. I got more than 50,000 votes. Does she imply that those 50,000 people who voted for me were also so um, blatantly ignorant. It, it's just was shocking how, how nonsense they are, actually. For me, it's important that we understand the national security law, which provides a gateway for Hong Kong's well, authority to prosecute our political activists at their own will without much restriction and with their political um, determination that would definitely harm Hong Kong as a whole. And one of the the other complaints that she had is that you hadn't agreed to debate with her. She said you needed rational, informed debate now about Hong Kong's future. To what extent do democracy activists like yourself think that there is a point in debating with Regina Ip and people on her side of the argument? Well, it's interesting that she she said, I refuse that because I've never received any invitation. So if she wants that, um, I'll definitely will be able to do it. And I welcome rational discussion and I welcome her to debate with me on any other issue because I'll definitely know that we are standing on the side of truth. We're standing on the side of people's values and people's rights. Well, there you go. At least the, uh, the the offer has been made through <laughs> through the programme if you to decide that you want to take it up. Um, a little over a year ago, there were 1.7 million people demonstrating on the streets of Hong Kong against a much more narrowly focused piece of legislation, an extradition agreement with China. 
where have they gone? Have they melted away? And do you expect more protests? And if so, what is the likely scale of it now? Well, I think the support for Hong Kong's democratic movement is still really strong. There were more than 600,000 people coming out to vote for the primary election for the democratic camp. The things that make people disperse is that the government has been adopting very draconian and very harsh measures to deal with protests. For example, they are, they used excessive force. The police, well, sometimes they just beat up uh, the protesters and they are not getting any checks and balances in the system. For the past few months, there have not been single authorized or permitted protest by the government, by the police force. So they are actually tossing our rights into the rubbish bin in order to quash the protest. The support of the movement is still very strong, but it's just there is no peaceful ways that the government allow to express their opinion. And if you look at it from the perspective that Mrs Ip embodies, the pro-democracy movement has been hijacked, she says, by extremists and radicals. They want complete secession from China, and that's why China had to impose this new law. Just to be clear, do you want Hong Kong to be fully independent from mainland China? Well, I've never advocated for independence. And I think most of Hong Kong people, their own genuine wish is to reserve our autonomy and democracy, which is embedded into the Sino-Brutishan Declaration and uh, the One Country, Two System. But for now, it, it's just a problem that Beijing does not well meet up the expectation and the promises made in the treaty that refused to follow the opinion of Hong Kong people. So I think it is not about having independence. That is just a way that Beijing to distort public opinion. It's about Beijing violating the Sino-Brutishan Declaration and does not respect the promises they have made for Hong Kong people, which are uh, autonomy and democracy. And what do you think will happen next? I mean, some people do think that China has won a major victory in the battle for Hong Kong. Is that your view? Well, for the next step, we need to be really persistent and uh, tenacious and really keep up the protest on the ground. And for the international level, we've got a lot of policy change in regards to China. And I think as long as it continues, then China would have to be accountable to the international community and fix its human rights violation, no matter in Xinjiang or in Hong Kong. And what do you think is most effective in terms of the international community support? Uh, we have touched on the response of the, the British government, but the response of the British government is it's an easier path for people to leave Hong Kong than it is to support people on the ground in Hong Kong. We need to understand that these strategies are multilateral and we don't have to pick one. We actually could have a combination of that. And for me, um, helping people who are in grave danger to have a safe, safer spot is important. But on the other hand, helping those who are resisting on the ground, willing to risk to protest is also important. So putting pressure on China, really voicing out staunch support for the human rights defenders in Hong Kong, and also accusing China for their misbehaviors in Xinjiang, I think these will apply pressure on Beijing and there will be a, a point that they have to review their strategy. I think for now, the, the, the direction has been moving to um, quite a positive sign. And I hope that in the future, uh, countries together could work more 
and to implement more, more policies on Hong Kong. We cover a lot of, of business and obviously the economic impacts on Hong Kong and on the Hong Kong-China relationship. There's clearly a lot of anxiety about that. About three quarters of those surveyed by the American Chamber of Commerce were concerned. And yet two thirds of respondents also indicate that companies haven't got any plans to move out of Hong Kong. And the Hang Seng Index surged after the law was passed on June the 30th. So is it really the case that business might turn a blind eye to a lot of this and continue as before? Well, uh, yes, uh, but we have to observe quite a long term during this crisis time that there will be a lot of Chinese money flowing into the market. And the, the reason why the Hansen Index search, uh, partly because there were actually a, a lot of like so-called national team in order to create an atmosphere that Hong Kong's economy is not collapsing. But for the long term, I understand that there are a lot of companies, especially in the media or tech company. They're thinking about moving away from Hong Kong because the law imposed by the government has been creating a lot of chilling effect on them. And they just don't know when they will be falling into the legal trap set by the government. We all agree that free flow of information, free flow of capital, these are really important infrastructure or cornerstone for Hong Kong's success. And we are seeing it being eroded by the law. I'd be interested in what you think the likely next steps are politically, and particularly as we look into the autumn and those informal opposition primaries. Uh, over 600,000 people have taken part in them. They've been condemned by Beijing. What's the significance uh, of that vote? Regina it seemed to reply that the right to stand for election is not absolute. So are you seeing the rights of people to stand for election being materially constrained? Well, definitely. We will expect that uh, there will be a lot of disqualification case. Their candidacy will be lost, not because they are not pleading allegiance to the basic law or the government, but because the returning officer of the election, the, the government has an arbitrary power to disqualify them. And it is seen as a process of political screening. So we will definitely see that uh, there will be uh, disqualification cases and this is a serious election fraud because you are barring very competitive candidates from running and to increase your chance of winning it. And what do you think the outcome will be? The outcome will be candidates being disqualified and there will rage from the public will be ignited. If I read your mood correctly, you sound like you're, you're still up for the fight in the democratic opposition but what does a good outcome look like now? Well, of course, we understand that would be a very, very long battle. We are not talking about in a year time or two years time. It's important that people preserve, but it's also important that we, we're not blindly optimistic about the length of that struggle against an authoritarian and autocratic government. So for me, um, yes, indeed, we need to have belief in ourselves and, and the future and democracy. But we also have to be prepared for a very, very long struggle time. I feel I, I have a lot of things to do. Nathan Law, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. And we'd love to know what you think. How should the rest of the world respond to the standoff in Hong Kong? And what options now remain for Hong Kong's Democrats? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And for more of our journalism with The View from Beijing and Hong Kong, do subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.
traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.